We'd all love to spend more time outside, to see more birds, have more fun, connect with friendly people. Our happiness depends on it. But modern life can push us away from nature. Enter Berta. Berta is the free new app that boosts your birdwatching experience. Fun birding challenges, leaderboards, and cool badges turn seeing bird life into a game. And better still, all the sightings go to help bird conservation. Come bird with Berta. Sign up today. It is free. You can find Berta, that is B-I-R-D-A, on all app stores. Look around your home. I bet there's a bunch of bird-related books or art. And of course there are, because, well, birds are your obsession. If you're looking for a great way to discover more bird-friendly brands, bird artists, authors, and so much more, we'd love to introduce you to BirderBox. BirderBox is a subscription service that sends you a package four times a year filled with birdie things that allow you to dive deeper into your passion. BirderBox is the world of birding unboxed. Learn more at birderbox.com. That's B-R-D-R-B-O-X-X.com. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. I'm back from what was an exceptional trip to Colombia to speak at the Manizales Bird Fair. Great people, amazing birds, as you'd expect from such a place. I came back to the United States with a stomach bug and a scheduled recording session with three great birders to talk about some really interesting avian items. The former is well, mostly resolved. The latter I bring to you today. So let's get to it. Jenny Duberstein, Tim Healy, Ryan Mendelbaum, and I talk bird names, the universal alarm call, and what makes birds look good to humans. All after this week's substantial rare birds. This is your rare bird focus for the end of November 2023. I should have known not to take a week off in November because the last two weeks have been absolutely ridiculous, particularly in South Texas and incredibly corresponding with this year's Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival. The ABA's third record of bare-throated tiger heron was seen by a festival field trip in Star County at the same site, Santa Margarita Ranch, that has hosted a small flock of brown jays for several months now. Not one, but two individual roadside hawks were seen during the week, one in Hidalgo County and a younger bird in Cameron County. It's been about five years since the last roadside hawk was seen north of Mexico, and I can't recall if there have ever been two at once. The big shocker, though, came farther north when a potential ABA area first record of cattle tyrant was photographed in downtown Corpus Christi. This species has been on, if not the short list, then the slightly longer list of potential ABA area firsts by virtue of its rapid expansion out of South America in recent decades. Even so, there are no confirmed records of this species farther along in the Americas than Panama, and its presence near a busy shipping port does suggest ship assistance as a possible, if even likely, provenance. Presumption of ship assistance is not a deal breaker for inclusion of a species on the ABA checklist, but local committees do have their own criteria on the matter. Previous species for which there is an assumption of ship assistance, like past records of tropical mockingbird or black catbird, have not been accepted in the past. Three years into this Limpkin invasion, New Jersey finally gets on the board when a Limpkin was seen at a private yard in Monmouth County, closing a pretty significant gap in the Northeast. Unfortunately, this bird was not doing very well only a few days into its stay and was captured and taken into a rehabilitation center where it remains 
One of the more surprising records of the week comes from the Derby Hill Hawk Watch in western New York, where a short-tailed shearwater was seen over Lake Ontario, representing a first for the state and one of only a handful of records in the east. I suppose it does not need to be said that all of those records have been on the ocean, not on a lake. Also in New York, a black-chinned hummingbird at Randall's Island in New York City is a long-awaited state first there. You'll hear more about that one here in a bit. Florida's first record of black guillemot was photographed in Duval County. This is remarkably the eighth alcid species on the Florida list. Also this week, a couch's kingbird in Tallahassee was also a state first. It was photographed and crucially recorded. Illinois had a broad-tailed hummingbird at a feeder in Champaign, which represents a first record for that state. And in Saskatchewan, a pygmy nuthatch at a feeder in Regina is a first for the province and another indicator of a significant movement of birds out of the interior west this fall. Now that the western flycatcher lump is official, birders are identifying vagrant birds with confidence for the first time in many years, including a Rhode Island first in Burlingame. We also got two unexpected potential firsts from California during the period, including an apparently pure eastern towhee in San Diego County, though the species has been considered by the California Committee in the past and determining acceptable levels of hybridization with resident spotted towhees is rather difficult. Maybe more shocking, though, comes the report of what appear to be Casha crossbills in San Mateo County, which would be a first. The extent to which this species wanders is heretofore unknown, but its specific status is determined mostly by the assumption that they are largely sedentary and localized to the South Hills of Idaho. Recent recordings that have placed these birds in Colorado and now California have thrown a little bit of a monkey wrench into the question of whether or not they should be split from Red Crossbell. That was a lot. Those are the highlights for the past week, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. Not this week because of the holiday, though. You can follow along with all the Rare Bird news, though, in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. Hi, this is Wayne Clocker, Executive Director of the American Birding Association. For over 50 years, the ABA has been serving the community of birders in North America by providing news, resources, and connections to assist birders on every step of their journey, and we need your help to continue into the future. By making a gift to the ABA, you're providing us with the resources we need to continue producing world-class stories from inside the world of birding, like the ones you've heard here on the American Birding Podcast. You'll help us continue building ABA Community and the ABA Community app, a place for birders to discuss all things birding and get advice and ID help from community experts on the go. And you'll help us continue producing birding and North American Birds magazines with in-depth information and stories from the world of birding and bird conservation. Please make a gift today by going to aba.org appeal or by calling 800-850-2473 and help the birding community continue to grow and thrive. Thank you. It's the end of November, time for this month of birding, celebrating the one United States holiday on the calendar that centers a bird, even if it is at the center of your dining room table. I'm delighted to welcome, as always, an all-star panel of birdie friends to talk bird news. We've got some juicy topics this time around, and we'll talk it all out for as long as it takes. I hope you're ready. First up, she is a young birder mentor, Camp Colorado director, a friend of the ABA, and a real deal bird scientist, which is always nice to have. Hello again, Jenny Duberstein. Hello, good to be here. 
I'm happy to have you. He is the birding world's most devoted map maker, an educator, and a writer at the Nemesis Bird. Welcome back, Tim Healy. Hi, Tim. <laughs> Always good to be back, Nate. Thank you. Yeah. And a science writer, the creator of Bird Moto, and an individual who has just added Black Chin Hummingbird to their New York list. Hi, Ryan Mendelbaum. What's up? <laughs> nice. <laughs> I should say that Tim also added uh, Black Chin Hummingbird to his New York list as well. So we've yep. got two However newly, <laughs> uh, newly uh, added state list birders to this panel who are clearly basking in the joy of having just added a bird. I had to go request. because um, we were asked, a couple of birders were asked what the next 10 New York state birds would be. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I had black chinned hummingbird as like, prop like maybe one of the first or second ones. And I felt really silly after that because I was just like, no one's going to be able to figure that one out. Like, I'm just going <laughs> to. And so when I saw it, I was just like, yes, yes, yeah. I got to go. Validation. Nice. That's, yes, it's been of a course. long time coming to get one that we could pin down for that. And I'm yep. just I'm very excited that it happened at my own patch and very excited to have gotten a brief glimpse. And I'm going to try to improve on that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, good luck with that. In my experience, they do tend to stick around a little bit, at least those bigger ones in the east. We had one in my county a couple of winters ago that was neat. They're in um, my backyard. Yeah, well, yeah, of course, obviously. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, friends, let's get into the biggest news of the month and probably the biggest bird story of the year. I mentioned it in an earlier episode. I intend to discuss it more critically with some of the committee members in the future. But I want to want to talk a little bit about it with you now. Maybe take some temperatures. The AOS Ad Hoc Committee on English Bird Names recommended the removal of all eponyms, so honorific names, from English Bird Names and the proposal of a new process and a new committee to make those changes over the next few years. I have seen a lot of discussion about this on my socials, as I'm sure you have too, and in my local listserv. It has been a mixed bag. Uh, at least initially, it was certainly more heat than light. It does uh, seem to have moderated a little bit, at least in the last few days. Maybe I'm wrong there. I, I do want to focus the discussion, though, on this response, either positive or negative, and how you would like to see this process play out going forward. Uh, just tell me, what do you think? What are your thoughts now that we have finally reached this day where where this decision that I don't think anyone really expected would happen, happened? I, I'll start. I personally am I'm here for it. I'm so mm -hmm. excited about this. Um, I acknowledge that it's a lot of change and change a lot. is a lot. uncomfortable and it's okay to be uncomfortable. And I think it's important to recognize that it's going to make people uncomfortable. Um, but I see this as such a cool opportunity to be, yes. it's like a historic moment in birding and ornithology. And we all have the chance to, to be part of it. Um, the, the process that the committee has recommended is great. It's not going to leave these decisions up to taxonomists and ornithologists, but to really bring in all sorts of different perspectives and, um, the part that's been the most fun for me, honestly, has been seeing the the discussion on social media where people are throwing around different names. So I think it should be mm -hmm. called this. I think it should be called that. And it's so creative. And I'm seeing it from like young birders are having these discussions all ages. Everybody is just getting in there and, and having a chance to um, think about this creatively and come up with names that will actually be gasp useful for helping yeah. people identify the birds that they're looking yeah. at what a concept um yeah i'm excited about it yeah i'm gonna just hop in and also say i'm obviously so excited about it i mean i'm excited about it first off because like if you look back 
it's not like it's always been this thing that we name things after people. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I mean, for most of history, we just named them. Mm-hmm. I, I gave them a name. Uh, but also, you know, there are op-eds from like the 1880s. And yeah. I have one, I don't remember his name, but he was one of the co-founders of the Boy Scouts. He was like, listen, like scientists name, give them science names and people give them people names. Like if you go and ask some random guy on a farm in the middle of nowhere, like, and tell him that's a Sprog's Pippet or whatever, he's going to be like, I don't care. But if you tell him it's a Skylark and acts like a Skylark, he'll be like, cool, I'll call it that. And a month later, he'll still call it a Skylark. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, I know many people out in the Midwest, many of whom easily would remember the word Sprog. Sprog? Sprague? I've actually never heard. That's actually one of the problems with some of yeah. these names. Is that <laughs> I don't even know. Boxes, bows, <laughs> well, Sprogs, yeah. Sprags. Who knows? It's, it's, yeah. None of them. I mean, obviously, they all know this bird. But uh, I think that in, you know, 10, 20 years time, it's going to be awesome to be learning the birds. And it's just got like, either a cool name, or a useful name. You know, I, I mean, when you go to the tropics, and all the birds have like, you know, names like flame faced tanager, like that's great. I want to, mm-hmm. I want a flame faced warbler. Yeah, we got one. We got, we got one that's got a name. Maybe it needs to be changed. <laughs> I know. A couple Strong of them. possibilities. Yeah, I think it's a really exciting time. You know, it's it's definitely. I respect and understand that it's going to be a maybe an awkward transitional period, but I'm more excited about what's coming down the line. The fact that mm-hmm. like it's going to be an opportunity for bringing all these different voices together. The birding community get to be a part of the process on this renaming yeah. effort. I'm really interested to see what that looks like. And, you know, Ryan and I have discussed this extensively <laughs> just, you know, among friends it's going to feel like, you know, getting all new birds. It's a little shot in the arm. It's like a cool little, you know, DLC patch for our North American birds. <laughs> we get to, you know, get to see them in a whole new light. And some of these conversations that Jenny was referencing about like, oh, what would be a good name for this species? Like, it's been a really cool opportunity to dig into life history, various mm-hmm. different plumages, interesting behaviors, and like really take some time to get to know some of these species that, you know, live in our own backyards and see them in a whole new light. So it's, I've kind of always been of the opinion that eponyms and honorifics are like, they're, they're pretty straightforward and not particularly exciting, right? Like these are names mm-hmm. that are almost boring at best. Like, and now we have an opportunity to, re- to replace those with something useful maybe something even poetic and inspiring. I think that that's, that's a trade up. Like, you know, it's, I think that that's well worth any of the challenges that are going to face this process in the years to come. I think it's, I think it's definitely um, exciting to look towards the imminent future. And I'm with you. Like, this is something I've looked for. Like, you know, I'm like, that would be cool if it happens. And yeah, exactly. Now it's happening. Like, that's, that's yeah. great. Yeah. I am, I'm constantly impressed with the amount of creativity and knowledge there is in the birding community for coming up with alternate names for some of these species there. I think one of the worries that a lot of people who may oppose it have is that, Oh man, they're going to screw this up. (laughs) Hello, birdie McBird face. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that, you know, once we start establishing that, this effort is going to result in some some really good names that are creative and also timeless, seem, yeah. feel exactly that feel like they were names that that describe the species and maybe have described the species forever. Yeah. Or maybe they call back to older names that mm-hmm. are already in the literature, or maybe they're alternate names or names that are used in other languages. There's a lot of ways that we can approach this. And I'm I'm excited to see how how this process plays out. And and like you, this is an opportunity for the birding community to 
you know, play a role in something that's going to affect birders down the line in really important ways. And I, what, a, what a time, what a time to be able to do this and what a time to take this on. Um, we know so much more about birds, these species now, yeah. than we did when they were originally described or they were shot and sent to museums in the East. Like we have so much more information available to us to come up with more evocative names. That's just going to be a lot of fun. There are going to be some names that are going to be obvious. There are going to be some names that are going to be out there. I think there's going to be a real mix. But as you said, the opportunity here is just incredible. I mean, also, guys, like birds are for everyone. They're not for like Sprague and Bachman and Wilson. Like birds are for everybody. And like now we all get an opportunity to actually like together come up with bird names. Mm -hmm. Like now the birds really will feel like they're for everybody, not just for like one guy or like a couple of people. Like this Mm -hmm. is a really amazing opportunity for just as a community. Well, yeah, I mean, and that brings up another point that I wanted to touch on, which is that among my non-birding friends and family, birds named after random guys has always kind of been one of the especially silly things that they yeah. poked fun it's at. True. And like, oh, really? Cooper's Hawk? Oh, does he know where it is? <laughs> like, you know, you got to get <laughs> it back to him. I, I think that, you know, the bird names that people enjoy, the bird names that people remember are the really out there, fun, descriptive cool ones and just so-and-so's whatchamacallit is never particularly inspiring on the face of it. So I think that, you know, the opportunity to kind of reshape the future and the conversation about some of these birds is really exciting opportunity. Yeah. I'm excited to see what the pilot process looks like. You know, they're talking about trying to pick a set of birds that maybe gives a spread of some of the different Mm -hmm. (laughs) challenges and obstacles that are going to be involved here. I'm really interested to see like what species get picked for that trial run it's gonna be pretty cool i I, we don't need to go down this this route too much but like for for people who who feel that this is taking something away Mm -hmm. from those after whom these birds were named i would posit that oh gosh i haven't done this research so there's no number but i bet most birders don't really know who stellar was Based some on do. my sort of Absolutely anecdotal some do. <laughs> conversations, um, most people don't. Like most people exactly. don't know that the Ross of the Goose and the Ross of the Gull <laughs> are two different Rosses. Right. Right. Or the Clark and of the Nutcracker and Clark of the Grebe are two different Clarks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like my thought is just that that for people who did make important contributions to ornithology, let's remember them for their work, for the contributions to mm-hmm. ornithology that they did and not by naming a bird after them in some way that nobody will remember who they were or very few people remember who they were. And the other piece that I just want to put forth, this is like, if you look at the birds that are named after men and the birds that are named after women, there's like sort of an obvious um, sort of uh, sexism piece in there. We're going to name the birds after women, but we're going to use their first names. Yeah. Sorry, Mrs. Men. Moreau. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> I know. That's my favorite. Also, like, these birds aren't named after the discoverers, guys. They're named after just their buddies. And <laughs> that, is, that is a misconception <laughs> that I think people are sort of coming to terms with. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think people perhaps reasonably assumed that when a bird is named after a person, that person had a role to play in the discovery of that bird. Well, discovery to Western science of that bird or the description of that bird to science or anything like that. And frequently, that is absolutely not the case. People name birds after people they knew, people they admired people they needed favors from thank you jj 
Audubon. <laughs> he was frequently, he was really bad yeah. about that. Sponsors and or people who sponsors, put him up for a yeah. little while. Like it uh, truly he, is. People he needed a deal on exactly. engravings for his book, like stuff like that. And like th- those people weren't necessarily involved. And the people that were involved in the actual subsequent studies of that individual species who actually did the hard graft field work determining the life histories of a lot of these birds are frequently forgotten to science. So the example mm-hmm. is Nelson Sparrow, named mm-hmm. after E.W. Nelson, who was legitimately a fascinating person, uh, was part of an Alaska expedition that did a lot of collecting up there. One of the first people, for first you know, Smithsonian scientists up there, not a person that I necessarily have any issue with. You'd think that maybe he had something to do with the sparrow that eventually had his name and for what it's worth has had its name changed three times in my <laughs> history of learning. But he didn't. He didn't have anything to do with that. And there actually was an 18th century researcher, scientist, who did, a guy by the name of Jonathan Dwight, um, who did a ton of work in the northern Great Plains uh, doing the life histories of these birds. He has no birds named after him. Mm. So, like, it's important to realize that these names are sometimes, like, it's a very narrow set and, and frequently a heavily romanticized set of American ornithology that doesn't really... It doesn't really indicate that actually the scope of the science or the story that we want to tell. And we can still tell that story, of course. Mm-hmm. But, you know, these names aren't aren't the vehicle for doing so. Yeah, well said. I was just yeah. going to say, I think that's exactly it. Like, no, let's not forget history. Let's not. We're not erasing history. Let's learn the history. Let's learn about yeah. these people and who they were let's and what they did. Let's learn about the real history. And, and the let's call birds it. by things that, that are uh, helpful and inclusive and welcoming and don't... Um, Aren't, aren't friends of Spencer Bear. Arbitrary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm still going to call Virginia's warbler and Lucy's warbling Grace's warbler the girls. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, you can call them whatever you want. Yeah, I still run right. into people who call Harrier's marsh hawks. So it's not like yeah. these name changes uh, uh, really when matter in the long run. When we're weird <laughs> old birders, people will be like, what do they mean? <laughs> like, what, like, what, but that's that it, Nate. Like, bird names have always changed. Yeah. They have never changed at this scale. Like this many proposed at the same time. For sure. Absolutely. But they have always changed. They will continue to change. And this is just um, a cool opportunity to really be thoughtful about it. Also, important clarification there. Uh, when I said Ryan and I are going to be old, weird birders, we're young, weird birders. <laughs> just yeah. someday. So it's not really someday it's just we a passage of time. Also be, here, right? I was not yeah. saying old and weird. I was saying when these weird birders get older. <laughs> yeah. Whomst among us, all of us will be. That's true. Absolutely. Everyone listening knows exactly what we're talking about. This month in birding, um, I read this new paper that is actually hasn't officially been published yet. It's about to be published maybe even today. (laughs) By the time this podcast goes live, it should be on the website in final form um, in the journal Ornithological Applications. Speaking of name changes, was that the contour or the awk? Uh... The awk? I forget. Yeah, I, I can't it was remember. either Sorry, the condor I didn't mean or to the awk. You. I just thought that was just a, <laughs> a really just, good question. Just remember that ornithological yeah. applications is one of the old journal names of the, the AOS. People got upset when they changed the names of those it's journals true. too, and I still don't know which is which. But yeah. it's one well, of them. That's the problem. I still I didn't know before, and now I definitely don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, to Steve Albert and Rodney Siegel from the Institute for Bird Populations, published this paper called "Improving the Language of Migratory Bird Science in North America," and it's it's actually you know kind of related to this idea about changing some of the bird names and and their their whole position and one which I agree with heartily is somebody who works in um, bird conservation in the Southwest U.S. and Northwest Mexico. 
Um, and we all have our field guides to the birds of North America, right? Which mm. in those field guides, we mean the United States and Canada. We don't yep. mean North America. speaking North America and maybe a little bit of French speaking North America. Yep. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So they're proposing to, to, if we can't change it entirely because some of these words are just baked deep into ornithology and birding, to think about the, the words that we use. And they talk about North America you know, we need to consider North America being Canada, the United States, Mexico, Central America, all the way down through Panama. Continental North America. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if we talk about the United States and Canada, we can say the, United, the North America north of Mexico. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense, right? They talk about um, things like spring migration and fall migration and how problematic mm. those words are or wintering or overwintering habitat for Nearctic neotropical migrants. Those are words that come from a very U.S., Canada-centric hmm. perspective, right? They're overwintering. They're spending our winter somewhere else. But where they're we're going, it's summer, not winter. Right. Yeah. right? Yeah, it might be summer true. if they're going far enough south. It might be just like the rainy season <laughs> yeah, <laughs> versus exactly. the dry there season. Only two seasons. Um, yeah, time. and so they propose, like instead of saying... Uh, the wintering or overwintering, they say, let's use non-breeding. Or instead of saying spring migration, we could say pre-breeding migration or okay. post-breeding migration for fall migration. Um, and they're just, they're words that A, more accurately describe what's happening um, in the world that we live in with 3 billion fewer birds than there were in 1970. Um, a lot of us are looking at what we call full annual life cycle conservation. So mm-hmm. looking at, at how birds are doing, whether they're on the breeding grounds, whether they're migrati- migrating or whether they're on their non-breeding um, habitat. I almost said wintering grounds. Um, <laughs> it's going to take some time. Um, it'll help us does. to be able to talk about it better. It will yeah. support ornithologists and those working in conservation in, in those other locations to feel included and like the words we're using actually are describing where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes no sense for you know, somebody in Chile in January to talk about uh, the winter migration. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's just, it's not. Yeah. So anyway, it was, it's a short little paper, really interesting. And um, yeah, like all of these things I'm here for it. It's I'm I'm changing the way I talk. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It was really awesome. I mean, I think one thing that a lot of birders don't think about is that North American birds or birds that breed in North America are spending like nine months of the year in yeah. Central and South America. Yeah. Like, in fact, exactly. they are Central and South American birds who are like taking a quick, like romantic <laughs> vacation to, you know, North America to, for to a couple Bug months. Central and uh, Boreal Ohio. Canada. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's honestly, some of these birds, like learning about their South American life cycle is so interesting. I mean, Tennessee warbler is a bird you see on like backyards at garbage cans or like yeah. worm-eating warbler is like, you know, hanging around cecropia trees and like really mm. just specializes in looking for insects and cecro- dead cecropia leaves. These birds are so interesting. I was just in Colombia. Columbia, and it, it always gives me a thrill to see the birds that breed uh, near me in in Colombia. And my God, there are so many black burning warblers like hanging around in mixed feeding flocks. Canada warblers hopping around out in front of you, like in a yeah, way that I never would have expected. Swarms or like yeah, yeah summer flocks. tanagers, like all this stuff. Baltimore Oriole, like, the broad winged hawks taking off in the morning in the Colombian Andes. It's um, of course I love to think about the whole life cycle of these birds, and it's always like meeting up with old friends when I see them in places like that. But I, I think this idea that we are 
taking into account all the entire life cycle of these birds is from a conservation perspective essential. It just makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Post breeding, pre breeding migration, that's going to take some getting used to. That's the hard <laughs> one. I already can work non breeding, uh, non breeding territory or non breeding range into my vocabulary. I feel like that's that's pretty easy. Um, but man, it's going to take a like those those spring migration, fall migration are burned into my brain. It's going to take some <laughs> while to get 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 my neurons out of those ruts. Yeah, no, I think it's true. And one of the sentences, I'm going to paraphrase, but like towards the end, they say something to the effect of, you know, the words we use reflect the way we think about things. Yeah. It's yeah true. And it's, no, it's true. true. You know, we think about fall migration because it's fall it's where fall. we are cool and they are migrating. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but if we want to have a more holistic view of the what these birds are doing the other nine months of the year, it's helpful. and, yeah. and practicing saying different things yeah. the more we practice the easier it becomes yeah and, it will get easier yeah. after a right. amount mm-hmm. of time it's it's true and i also i think it's a matter we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier of like casual names versus scientific discourse names and things like that i think that this is especially important for kind of like full communication within mm-hmm. the scientific and the research community it's like you know it, we're not saying like oh you're not allowed to say fall migration when you're talking with your <laughs> friends about going birding but yeah. I think that the mindset is the key thing that they're advocating here for, right? Exactly. Of like looking yep. at the full picture of the lives of these incredible animals and like considering that our experience with them, as enriching and fantastic as that is, is not the sole context in which these birds exist. Yeah. And like trying to exactly. keep in mind that w- when they leave us, they're going to go live very different lives for a significant chunk of the year. And, and, and frequently fascinating lives. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And especially in the, the technical literature and, you know, mm-hmm. those of us who are actually working, say, with partners in South America on sure. conservation yeah. of mm-hmm. golden wing warblers or something. It's, it's vastly unhelpful for us <laughs> to have uh, uh, North America, North of Mexico centric vocabulary. Yeah. 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 yeah, I've always thought it was weird. The whole fall migration, spring migration thing was odd in terms of austral migration anyway. Like it always <laughs> sort of flipped my mind on that. You know, the oh, the the fall, the forktail flycatchers show up in, you know, fall, but that's spring migration for right. them or, or that, the way around. Yeah. I can never, exactly, I can never quite get my head around it. But um, yeah, I mean, we're increasingly more sophisticated in our understanding of how birds move through the, through the, yeah. through the hemisphere. And, you know, this language, this different language expresses that. Yeah. No, I was talking with somebody about um, this bird names issue and we were talking about other potentially problematic names and Mississippi kite is one that came up just sort of saying like, what Mississippi, like they spent like, they should, it should be called Bolivian kite. I think is what he yeah. said, <laughs> because that's where they spend most of their yeah, time. Yeah, that was just, one of the arguments I've seen uh, opposing the bird name change. It's like, what happens if we want to change all the bad names? Do it! Like, <laughs> what would what happen? <laughs> Do it! There, yeah, has, like, there has been a lot of discussion. Would that be the worst thing yeah. in the world? There's would been that, a lot of stuff Would it stuff really online. be the worst thing in the world? <laughs> it's fun. It's just, this is your hobby. We got to keep I, learning. Just keep learning, right. you know? Right. You stop learning, you start dying. Exactly. exactly. That's I'm, I'm always saying that. <laughs> <laughs> it has been eye-opening for me to see, like, some of these discussions about, you know, oh, what's a good name for X or Y species? And, like, Coming up with a quote unquote perfect bird name is very challenging. Like yeah, there's a lot of things nigh on that you have to consider. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I think there's there's wiggle room for a little bit of artistic flair in there. Like, you know, like yeah. it's like, oh, if this species doesn't exclusively favor this kind of plant, it's like, you know, 
but may, maybe it's still a good name for them anyway. <laughs> like, or it's like, it oh, the species nice. doesn't yeah. only live in this place. You know, that's, we, we can we can work with it, right? So it's I think <sighs> I think it's important to bring all these different contexts in and all these different voices yeah. and to consider all the various options. Yeah. But um, at the same time, I I don't want to see this initiative. Um, getting back to the bird name changes. <laughs> Kind Always. Of let, Let's let see if the, we tie everything back to the yeah. <laughs> I just I just don't want to see the perfect become the enemy of the good because that's how you, you do end up with everything being thick build long spur. Yeah. Hey, you know what? That's not a terrible. They do name. have a thick build. They do have it's a, a thicker build. Name. It's, it's a fine name. It's a fine name. It's a fine. A bird that maybe deserved more than a fine name, but it, it okay. isn't an inaccurate maybe. name. It's but, not an inaccurate name. Yeah. Jenny, I think yeah. Jenny has something to say. <laughs> I have something to say. Oh, that see, that's my fear, is that we're going to end up with a bunch of thick-billed longspur like names. Well, I think like, that's a lot of fears. Which again, there's nothing wrong with it. It's, yeah. it's right. No, no, it's, easy, guys. Only onomatopoeic names. That's it. <laughs> only onomatopoeic mononyms. Only. Yeah, <laughs> only. We need more bobolinks. All right. We, that's what I want. Just every bird has a name like bobolink. Bobolink and Chewing. Sora, show us oh, the way. Oh, my God. Katira for Grey Kingbird? is amazing we need more of that it's not a bad name yeah Yeah. i think it is funny the argument that the the nacc should retain control of english bird names which i should say they they are fantastic at taxonomy systematics cutting edge in that some of the best scientists in the world on that removing english bird names is maybe lets them focus on the things that they're actually good at because that is the committee that did come up with thick build longspur which a lot of people (laughs) seem to complain about um and maybe putting that in the hands of new a new committee is necessarily a a nicer thing i I don't have a problem again i don't have a problem with thick build longspur i think it's fine it's fine that's the that's the thing it's fine (laughs) i don't have a problem with it either it's fine it's just a missed opportunity right yeah it doesn't make me mad but it doesn't stir my heart you know (laughs) it's like it's fine (laughs) it's fine there's just big feelings. There's big yeah. feelings on all sides of this issue. And I think where you end up is like, well, this doesn't splitting, piss anybody off too the, much. We'll go here. Baby, as they say. Yes. Right in the middle. So maybe adding with Jenny's actual paper, it, what if... You're, so <laughs> Thank you're, you. So you're saying, so what we're saying is that all of Central America should be part of the ABA area. That's what I'm hearing. That's, and that's what I'm saying hey, as well. Hey, if that's, if that's what the membership wants. Listen. If that's what the membership wants. What if... You heard- you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> the seeds have been planted. <laughs> Let's do it's it. been discussed. I'm just saying it's it's been discussed as a theoretical. So we've got a, a big team of researchers uh, led by Jonah Dominguez at the University of Illinois, but also including folks at in Belgrade and uh, Liaoning University in China. Uh, we're studying uh, alarm calls. And so what they were wondering is, so you hear these, you know, alarm calls from birds, you've, especially if I've all heard like Vireo, like meh. Um, <laughs> and so they wanted to know, like, how Vireo, birds... Automata poetic name. Oh, yeah. Way. Really? That I makes think, sense. I believe yeah. so. Yeah. Anyway, I'm maybe. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> I'm really wrong. I'm sorry. Not gonna well, actually. Um, so <laughs> so no, they were trying to see oh, hello. Uh, so they were trying to basically see like how other birds were reacting to it. So like, does a bird who has never heard this alarm call before actually recognize this alarm call uh, or not? And so they were playing these alarm calls, and they assumed that they would. You know, I think some people have been to Central America. They have these mixed flocks, these flock leaders, and all the birds kind of join. So they were wondering whether other birds would recognize the alarm calls of these flock leaders in places that they didn't live. So they would play these songs. You know, uh, the bird that I think they played was maybe the dusky-throated ant shrike. Um, I wrote it down somewhere. Some ant shrike, um, which is a sentinel species. Yeah, dusky-throated. Some is a sentinel sentinel species in South America. You know, like a the sent the core of these of these mixed flocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they played its calls. And then the birds uh, from every they they played them in Europe, North America, and, and in Asia. 
And all the birds acted as if the dusky-throated ant shrike was their local sentinel species. You know, they, they recognized mm. the alarm calls of these ant shrikes the same way that they would have recognized the alarm calls of whatever their local, usually it's some parrot, like chickadee, something like that, th what their alarm calls sound like, uh, which is really cool um, because we don't know what it means, right? Because it's just sort of a, just a study. But, you know, maybe evolution, it's like a convergent thing that there's just mm -hmm. a sort of sound that birds make that kind of, feels like an alarm call that birds recognize as signaling a threat. Um, or maybe they're conserved, and maybe this is something that dates back, like even the earliest days of evolution, that birds were all making some alarm noise that everybody agreed was the alarm noise. Um, but it's cool because it's just like the signal recognition that, um, you know, what a threat sounds like uh, it doesn't have to be necessarily learned. It, it could be actually an innate response to some of these noises. And I definitely listened to some dusky throated ant shrike calls last night in preparation of this. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, they like they sound like uh, they sound like a uh, Vireo. I don't know, like any of those like. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would make sense to a degree. You know, it'd be evolutionarily advantageous if you are a small fluttery prey bird to be very keyed in to what's going on around you and you know any sort of unfamiliar sound that could be a sign of danger like to respond to that as if it were a threat to respond to that in the way that you would for the thing you're sure about it makes it you know it makes to me evolutionary sense to just kind of like always have your head on a swivel and be listening in on your neighbors because they might know something you don't and even that unfamiliar sound could be your first warning sign that it's you know time to hit the deck <laughs> All right, Tim, then why doesn't pishing work when I'm not in the United States? <laughs> it's you, Nate. It's personal. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, that's probably right. That's probably accurate. I mean, Nate, have you tried? I mean, and listen, I, I haven't tried dusky ant shrike. That's that. Dusky that might be the secret. That's what I'm the sauce. Yeah. No, I don't condone playback. I don't think playback is a, I don't like it. I mean, I don't dislike it, but I, I don't love it. Uh, but I will say, like, I'll sometimes, I'm all my buddies in New York City know how to whistle, like, uh, Screech Owl, yeah. and they'll all whistle Screech yeah. Owl, and then birds come in. I can't do that, but I'll sometimes whistle Pygmy Owl, and I'll tell oh, yeah, you, they, they, they hear it, and they're like, I gotta go check whatever that is. And Pygmy Owl seems to bring the birds in, and I like to think I'm preparing them for their first <laughs> year in the tropics. That They're going to encounter a lot of Pygmy Owls. They do. They should get used they to it. They all sound roughly the same. Yeah, yeah they should get, And that, that seems to work for me. So I, I read it, and I was like, yeah, I've made some weird noises, and the birds come check it out. So, you know, makes sense. I mean, whether it's curiosity or, you know, who knows, but it's, it, it is interesting to see that an alarm call is an alarm call and that birds seem to respond to that somewhat universally. Like every human, no matter what language they speak, understands, hey, or help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For the most part, in, uh, in practice, if not in actual, and not yeah, in the actual. It gets words. people's attention, if nothing else, yeah, right? <laughs> I guess so. No, I mean, I, when you started talking about pishing, that was the one thing that was occurring to me, like finding this not all that surprising, like, because there is that universal sound that people can make that does. Right. Yeah. call the attention of lots of birds so it's not i'm not like yeah, totally I mean, like, whoa what a yeah, I, mean, I won't pretend that my pishing sounds exactly like any species but you know it, it is apparently <laughs> oh. good enough to get the birds attention you don't so. try to imitate chickadees and titmice when you oh, i do i'm just saying i don't think my human mouth and lips does a particularly good job of right. a searing impression but, well, i mean you gotta I, you gotta shove your mouth full of sunflower seeds like they do that's, that's yeah. how you really get it i heard a carolina wren making a one of their alarm calls and it like from a distance, it actually sounded like exactly like pishing. And I had like not heard huh. a Carolina Wren make that call before, but I was like, whoa, so that's what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I sometimes do lean on the Wren, the Wren attempt. Like, yeah. a good one. That, that yeah. gets them, gets them There's going. There's a slower, it's, it's like, psh, 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 
Yeah. Yeah. And you can buzz your lips a little bit too. It's not <laughs> exactly. <good>. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan, you're making a lot of bird sounds this episode. Yeah. This is great audio. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> I just, you know, I'm on cloud nine. I got a state bird today. I'm just, That's right. you know, I am become a bird. They are. They're willing to make some noises now. That's, <laughs> That's how I do it. That's how I get great content is make sure that all my panelists have seen a state bird before they, before they record. You should have us back here more often. I like the sound. Yeah, all right. There you go. <laughs> So the paper that I selected for this panel is regarding the concept of aesthetics and what it is that we humans find attractive in birds. So this was a paper by Andrea Santangeli and et al. And it was published earlier this year. And the key focus of this effort was to try and see if there's a scientific answer for what people find attractive in birds, like what physical features of birds make a bird aesthetically appealing to human eyes. And hmm. I think this is a delightfully off-the-wall study. And <laughs> uh, the way that they carried this out was they created a app, uh, iRateBirds, dot app which i originally read as irate birds uh, to, you know so like i thought it was i thought they were angry I like birds. yeah irate yeah. birds like but we no, already I have an app that's rate called birds, birds. Okay. yeah but um basically what they did was you were allowed to assign a series of hearts to each bird that popped up <laughs> and there were it was kind of like a swipe left swipe right you know is this bird worth 10 like the early two? days of facebook yeah no it really was <laughs> and there were some fascinating findings from this study um, and a couple of these I thought were fairly intuitive, but a couple of them surprised me. Um, and it was kind of fun to compare the findings of this study to like my own personal taste and like what I think makes a good looking bird. But some of the things that they found, uh, right off the bat, uh, shocker, colorful birds tended to score very highly. Mm. Um, they said that perhaps. blue seems to be the single most popular color. Um, huh. I, I'm not surprised by this based on, uh, social media rankings and brackets of birds, blue, any birds with even a scrap of blue on them anywhere seem to perform very well. Red huh. was also rated very highly, but basically the, the core thing that they said was, uh, what they referred to as color elaboration, just kind of like the, the amount of different colors and the degree to which those colors are shifted away from standard grays and browns. They said that birds with high scorings for color elaboration scored very well in this kind of aesthetic trial. Um, there also did seem to be a bias towards high ratings in smaller birds. Body mass was cute. correlated. Yes, yeah. if you are little and cute, you are aesthetically pleasing. And it also referred to extreme ornamentation as being another trait that ranked very highly. So birds with long tails birds with long bills and crests in particular, just people go wild for any sort of funky feathers and anything that is expanding and attenuating the normal silhouette of a bird. People just Love seem to go crazy. For that. Yeah. So I thought it was really interesting to kind of like see this broken down. They had some, they had some really fun graphs. Uh, Ryan pointed out to me that the entire data set is also available for download. If you want to pull it up and see like, 
how your favorite birds scored like what's the most aesthetically appealing bird what's yes. the least aesthetically appealing in bird? fact the bird that because of the statistics are not great so there's birds that have like four ratings and of right. course that bird's just randomly going to be in the top but according to science the <laughs> ugliest ugliest bird wait, 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 is, can i guess yeah is it the Watson? no because that okay. one has so much ornamentation. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. That's well, it's kind of looking. reptilian, people, it's, it's I think. Weird. So like that. it's going to be a, <laughs> a large bird that is sort of ugly and doesn't have a lot of colors, right? Is no, it an ostrich? It's, it's white-eyed robin, a uh, bird from Indonesia and Papua New Guinea. Apparently just didn't do it for me. Just no. basic, huh? <laughs> but then, yeah. and then, you know, it's like I said, the statistics are not great. I so would like, not have guessed that. I would not have guessed that. The top-rated bird is speckle-throated woodpecker. You know, it's like, it's a very nice bird, but it's, not it's had like four votes. Let alone the best bird. I know. <laughs> like, yeah. I know. This is science, but this is what science yeah. says. There were some sorry. interesting ones in there, like saw wet owl, northern saw wet scored yeah. very highly. Very, very um, high. I think it was also funny. Uh, Ryan pointed out that the, the, the almost dead on middle of the road bird is peg billed finch. That just oh, everyone, it's great. Everyone just goes, yeah, like, that, yeah. <laughs> that sure is just a bird. That's just a standard, <laughs> yeah. you know, kind of, kind of, and I mean, again, this is devoid of the context of where these species live, you know, how yeah. rare or hard to find they are. It's supposed to be just aesthetic. So, you know, a bird that looks weird compared to its fellows might not score as highly, but... Pegbilled finch had the tightest distribution, the smallest right, standard deviation yes. from the mean. Like, everyone five. agrees on that. Yeah, Everybody agrees pegbilled finch is a five. And yep. I think just everybody <laughs> in the world would probably sure. agree. I think all of you would probably I, I, agree. I just pulled it up on Birds of the World, yeah, and just, it is uh, it is a bird. bird. It's a bird. It's pretty. It is a bird. <laughs> it looks like a bird. And again, kind of funky within the context of its relatives. With a, but with a bill. It's a bird. <laughs> uh, so, okay. Okay. I have questions. Yeah. I did yeah. not read. Oh, I welcome them. <laughs> I did not read beyond the abstract of this paper. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. So there's 10,000. Can we agree? Like roughly 10,000 species of birds in the world. I think we're north. People of did not rate all species. of the yeah, birds. Up in that up, double, double, low double digit thousands. Yeah. So how many, how many were part of the study? I'm trying to remember. I did. It's read in the it. thousands. They it's had a like, lot. And was it they, representative they of a lot? And it was like, how did they choose which birds? Globally, I would need yeah. to take. I would need to take more of a deep dive on that. But I was looking at the set list, and it was a lot of birds. Like it was many thousands, and it was just you know throwing them at people. Seven thousand. Um, yeah, like that's 7,000 7, That's pretty yeah. good. And that's how good many people, how many respondents were there and how many of those 7,000 birds did they rate on average? Did you, I can't imagine each person rated. Like no, that's not audio. quite 3,000. Not quite 3,000. Huh. And obviously not everybody's going to rate every bird. That's why there were some that had like only four votes and it, it right. kind of like skewed yeah. the data. But I think conceptually. I mean, it, it, I'm, so I'm asking this yeah. as a social scientist. Oh, of course, yeah. Which no, I am, but I mean, I think they're kind of, you know rigorous review here. I <laughs> that's think right. That, that's great. Their that's results what, are probably right. Absolutely, it makes sense. Little cute, colorful. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, if you were to if you were to expand the survey and keep this going, I'm sure there's certain things that confound the variables a little bit. I'm sure there's a bell curve on size. You know, it's probably like <laughs> yeah. small, cute birds, very aesthetically pleasing, and then big, dramatic, majestic birds, yeah. very. Aesthetically there's also a bell pleasing. bird on size. There, that's there you nice. go. There's a bell curve on the bell bird. Terrible. I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> I mean, that. I'm sure, helpful. I'm sure there's a reason that the study's conclusions were. Um, Colorful birds are pretty, and not the conclusions were the speckle-throated woodpecker is the most beautiful. Bird. Right, exactly. This was more about general trends yeah. of like what do people like, and it, yeah. it did kind of make me ponder some of my own patterns of birds that I like the look of. Um, you know, like they were saying, like 
bright colors scored more highly than black and white. And I'm like, oh, I really like high contrast monochrome birds, like birds that have like stark black and white plumage with like a pop of color on them. That's that's yeah. what really I enjoy. Black like snowy gray owl, warbler. southern black cassowary. Yeah, black, yeah. a lot of warblers in there. Um, basically any seabird. Like I really like that kind of look, but I might be a I might be an outlier on that. But, Wait, I have one more question. Sure. Who who were the respondents in this survey? Like, is this looking at what people in North America, north of Mexico think of these birds? Because I would imagine that there are all sorts of demographic characteristics Absolutely. that might impact. What if you I remember correctly, I think that the majority of the team on this study was based in Europe. I, I could be wrong about that. Um, yeah, I'm looking up. Off well, I understand why they like Finland. colorful birds. They don't have very many of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, I think I think that that's you know definitely maybe a bit of a northern hemisphere bias in that regard. You know, but um, it is interesting, and this and that's why I thought that this was such a cool paper because there's so many other ways that you could dig into this more deeply, right? Like you can approach this yeah. question in a million different you know spheres. You could you could come at it with like do do birders have different values for what's a good aesthetic over what the general public would mm. think Do people in different parts of the world have different preferences. You know, I, th I think it's a really kind of interesting thing. And obviously you're not going to answer this question scientifically. What is the most attractive bird in the world? But it, it's kind of a fun little puzzle to wrap your head around and kind of see if there's a way to dig out some patterns in how people respond to that question. So I thought it was interesting. But it was a cool. I I stuff. totally intend to read the paper. My apologies to the authors for having strong <laughs> opinions about something about which I've only read the headline. <laughs> that is excellent uh, content, though. I won't, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, strong absolutely. opinions about something that you haven't read is sort of podcast yeah. bread and butter. This is right. Yeah. But I would, if it's not in here, that, that would be a question I would love to have the author's answer is like more information about the respondents rather than making broad statements about this is what. These are, this is the most beautiful bird. That's a super right, catchy headline. Right. I think that that's, yeah. That, and, that, and that wasn't included yeah. in the paper. That was more of just our little follow-up <laughs> afterwards. Like, ooh, what does it say? Ooh, full data yeah. set? For, don't mind if I do. That's <laughs> yeah. the issue. That's the issue with giving a journalist by training a huge spreadsheet with data. Because I'm not going to treat it scientifically. I'm going to pick the funniest. Like, I was that's looking right. like, what's the cutest ant pitta? Like, <laughs> you know, like... So thank you so much to them for creating so much content. This was really amazing. <laughs> yeah, really awesome, awesome question. Awesome pay fun to As you were describing uh, the characteristics that led to a more attractive bird, it made me understand why people like eastern bluebirds perhaps yeah. so much. Um, it feels like that's kind of in that sweet spot. Nice of, set of color, uh, good color blocking, cute exactly. and simple and fun. <laughs> exactly. And northern cardinal, of course. Absolutely. Mm, these, are our, these are our heavy hitter. Gotta have a crest. Gotta have a crest. Yeah. 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 I think there's something I was just going to say somebody mentioned solid owls yeah <laughs> there's something about eye size like little birds oh, yeah. with big eyes um are adorable for sure I mean yeah. it's true no doubt solid owls just owls like, in general are special yeah. solwets really are just too like too cute to function I don't know so, how they do it they're just little red-backed fairy wren that's the bird that had like 290 responses and then was in like the top five so I would say that that maybe top 10 I don't know that is the prettiest bird and i would agree if i look at a red-backed fairy wren i'm, I'm like yeah awesome. that bird is an awesome glossy bird. black it's a good looking bird bright it's red a good looking bird. fun tail I, fairy wrens all fairy wrens i'm ugh, just amazing amazing birds love yeah. those guys look that one up folks listeners <laughs> red-backed fairy wren
tell, tell us tell us we're wrong. Let's get to the question of the month. The AOS is proposing to create a committee for English common names to tackle the name changes, as we have discussed at length in this episode, uh, including a 10-species pilot effort to establish the process to be used in the future. You, friends, are given the opportunity to choose one of the species for this pilot effort. What currently be eponymed name are you choosing, and what is your preferred new name? Okay, I'll start. We're all staring at each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In podcast land, we have video so we can see each other's That's faces. Right. <laughs> okay, I saw this. My friend Gavin Bieber posted a big long list um, with some more names he came up with, some more names that other folks had had come up with. And whoever is responsible for this suggestion, let me know because I want to give you credit. I don't know. It was for Montezuma Quail, and mm-hmm. the suggestion was Calavera Quail. Uh, which is the Spanish word for skull. Yep. Which Ooh. I think is just so cool. It's so perfect. And the markings on the face look, they do look sort they of like, look like a skull. how you paint your face for Day of the Dead or something like yeah. that. I, oh, I, just, I love that. That big range so. overlap there. That is a very cool possibility. That is excellent. Mm-hmm. I was devastated when I found out that Har- Harlequin quail was already I taken because that was my, <laughs> my first choice for that one. But, oh man, could you say that again, Jenny? Calavera quail. C-A-L-A-V-E-R-A. Calavera. I like that a lot, actually. It's a that's, and that's, um, that's a bird that's that good. needs a, a good, strong it, name. Because, it does. Yeah. And, there's, and there's a million options you could go with. Like, one of, I, Harlequin quail was, again, like you, Nate, that was where my brain went first. But I'm like, yeah. ah, no, no wonder that sounds good. It's a bird name that exists. <laughs> it's already taken. Um, <laughs> For I, a bird I, that is not as good as Montezuma oh, quail. Let me uh, just say that, too. Yeah. yeah one of those old so, quails that are. Yeah. Made. Calavera quail is a great one. Um, I could, I'd love to see something reference all those, those gorgeous, gorgeous spotted patterns, like starry quail could be an option, mm-hmm. something like that. But uh, just, uh, there's so much you could say about Montezuma quail. <laughs> I hope that that one gets a good name, whatever it ends up being. Yeah. Mike. Oh, wait. We're not doing person <laughs> names. <laughs> Mike the quail. Fido. Bird names for birds. Yeah. <laughs> Dog names for birds. People named for dogs. Bird names for dogs. There you go. <laughs> I'm going to go next. Yes. Um, so it. I was originally going to say um, Bicknell's thrush should mm. be the uh, Krumholtz nightingale thrush. But... Uh, <laughs> Pat Lindsay and Gail Benson, two really great New York birders, reminded me that similar to Jenny's paper, they only spend about two months up there. It's not inclusive. And so I think that Bicknell's thrush would instead have to be uh, Atlantic nightingale thrush. And I think that that's great. But mine is not that. I had to change it <laughs> after that. Mine is uh, Sabin's gull have yeah. to, has to be uh, Zeme, X-E-M-E. <laughs> And that's it. Full and it's stop. just a name, a name that just appeared in like 19th century literature. That's true. The story of that name is unreal. Uh, that's no the, one knows. The genus it's, for Savin's Goal, for right, people who don't Zima, know, Zima is, is the genus, yeah. And it and, is totally made up. Yeah. Totally made just up. Just a nonsense word because it sounds cool. And, and it does. Pers- I think, I think Savin's Goal can pull it off. Like that oh, is yeah. a classy bird. And I think that if anything is going to get a wacky mononym, I think that's an established name. I've literally seen that in like animal yeah. alphabet books, like X yeah. is for Zeme. And I'm like, wait, who calls it that? That's yeah. cool. I look forward to all the Zeme so, memes. Yep. Yeah. That's the next do word. It, that's do the next it for word the bird. Zeme. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, and I'm, also- pushing, I'm pushing back against that. How is that helpful? <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not. It's probably it's not, not helpful. We're just, we're just speculating here. No, no it's okay. not el- helpful, but it's a great. It's going to be great for crossword puzzlers because we oh, really yeah, need more X words. Zeme is awesome. Yeah. And secondly, it sounds 
badass. Zeme? Oh, man. Uh, it's not helpful at all. Um, I wasn't asked to come up with helpful names for birds. I was Fair enough. to come Fair up with a bird name for birds. So that's Fair mine. I'm, I'm sure it'll get something more tame in actuality, but it's an established name. Oh, I, I would support I it. But How about yeah. Seagull for Sabin's Goal? Thank you. It is legitimately a seagull. <laughs> that would be seagull. pure chaos. That would be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> that would be hilarious. The chaos actually. option. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Personally, personally, I I'm more of a Ross's gull fan than a Sabin's gull fan. But like, oh, which by the way, right. Rosie gull maybe maybe we could do Rosie. I like I like the ones that are an easy transition. But from the existing um, game. I think but I do nice. I, I think Sabin's gull could pull off Zim. But um, in terms of other names that I consider, I, I, I really had a hard time kind of narrowing this down because there are so many different directions you could go. And I think one of the key things about this naming effort is like, there's a lot of different ways that I think these names are going to be sorted out because there are some mm -hmm. species where there was a name that it was called before that. And now you yep. can just reinstate that, you know, Backman Sparrow can very easily become Pinewood Sparrow again. Like, I think that the idea of translating scientific names in a few cases works out very well. Um, one that I've seen bandied about is painted longspur for Smith longspur. Appreciate all these smuggles in. I asked for one to get a name. You, you well got to no, no, no. <laughs> smuggle. You got to smuggle some in. Um, but <laughs> I think if I, if I get the chance, if I, can, if I can start planting the seeds of conversation about one particular name, I know a lot of people are sad to see the name Blackburnian Warbler go. And mm -hmm. I agree. Like, it's one that a lot of people probably didn't even realize was an eponym because you have this bird with this stark black and orange plumage and it's got black and burn right there in the name. It just, it's, yep. it's very apropos. But if that is a bird that needs to be renamed, we need to do right by it. And my personal submission that I would like to put forth is Ember Warbler. Just straight up ember, ember. it kind of gets that black coal look with the bright mm -hmm. orange glow in the center of it i think that is ember good, warbler Tim. is classy elegant you can i like that i like to be in the second syllable too through. because it's similar yeah to it's got some assonance to it i think it i yeah. think it blows so that's my push get people talking about it now ember, ember warbler, warbler would be a fine name to replace and i think that if we if a day comes that we're all looking up you know, on the boardwalk at the biggest week, it's like, oh, check out that Ember Warbler. Just like, I, th I think it's got legs. I think it can work out right. pretty well. Right. <laughs> not Halloween Warbler? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> you know, Halloween's not a big deal on its on its uh, non-breeding grounds, is what I'm saying. That's true, too. No, that's true. That's Less true. Of a deal. Less I mean, and Black Burning Warbler was one of the girls. Yeah, I know. Say. That's it why it's, it's, it, it is one. It is a sad loss. I, yeah. I agree. But that's why I think we yeah. need to do we need to do justice by it. And yeah. But Ember Warbler, I'm just imagining. You're in the field with somebody who maybe isn't a birder and you're trying to point out this warbler and you're like, there's the ember warbler. It looks just like an ember. It's like a piece yeah. of coal with the, well, yeah. the startings the of the of the flame. And they're like, I see it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a right. beautiful it's and helpful name. Absolutely. Ember warbler. I love it. And bring it back before, even in the non-breeding season, they've got that touch of orange. They've got that touch of yellow to them with kind of yeah. like the charcoal streaks. It's that's I true. think it's. It's a, you know, obviously it, it references the high breeding plumage, but I think it's a name that's applicable all around. And I think it's a good, poetic, evocative name, descriptive, and will get people excited about that bird. Yeah. And, you know, even more than the bird already does on its own. <laughs> it's no seagull, but it's good. <laughs> <laughs> all, right. all right. My turn. I'm going to go with Cooper's Hawk. 
uh, I think it will be an excellent test case for this project because mm-hmm. not only well-known among birders, every birder across the U.S. Yeah. and Canada, but also a bird that casual birders know pretty well uh, because they put up their bird feeders and they <laughs> will encounter a Cooper's hawk eventually. So for a name to stick, I think it's going to have to be a good one. And so I give you two suggestions and you can choose which one you want. Oh, okay. The first is capped hawk. Mm-hmm. So capped hawk, it references the cap on a Cooper's hawk, which was one of its most reliable field marks. And I think it is similar enough to Cooper's that it, it, you can make the transition relatively easily. You know, when we see a Cooper's hawk flying around, people say, coop, 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 going left. I think the transition to cap going <laughs> left, it will be a relatively easy one. So yeah, I, I offered that, that one as a possible name. All right. So put that one in your okay. pocket. The second option I have for you is Boss Hawk. Uh, not only because of the, the kind of sly reference to American Goss Hawk, but also because I think uh, New Jersey singer-songwriter Bruce Springsteen uh, understands that when you put up bird feeders, you are not just inviting chickadees and finches. You are inviting Exhibitor Cooper Eye because, as the boss says, everybody has a hungry hawk. <laughs> well done. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> Deep sigh. <laughs> appropriate. So no, Equally appropriate, appropriate reaction. It's all no good fun here. No one's going with Lil Goshawk. L I L Goss. Lil Goss. Lil Goss. Lil Goss would be fun too. I mean, that would be cool. You know, like like the Paleoarctic has like multiple goshawks, right? Tons of them. Like, they got all sorts of stuff they call a goshawk. You know, why can't we got? I want more. I want to see goshawks every day. Like, that's so cool. Yeah, I think I think that the feeling of goshawk like is very entrenched in you know ABA area birding. Like, so I think it would be a tough sell. Goshawk. Then it's little. They got to specify. I mean, then everybody would like it more if it was little, right? Maybe that's yeah. true too. Little no, goshawk, the good PR, that's for sure. More beautiful. <laughs> I think it's more of a goshawk than a sparrowhawk, though. I think I, I, I know think, the distinction is very. Economically, that might be the case. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Some talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Once they change the scientific name, then all bets are off. Folks, we have reached the end of another This Month in Birding panel. <laughs> Thank you to Ryan, Tim, and Jenny. Your insights are, are, as always, invaluable, and I've really appreciated this conversation with you. This has been a lot of fun. I will have a link to all the topics that we talked about in the show notes. Please check that out. Enjoy the rest of your fall into winter migration. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Post-breeding we'll migration. Post-breeding. Thank you. Oh, my <laughs> yes. goodness. I got to get that in my head. My Yeah, it's going to take some work. Thanks, everybody. Of course. Great <laughs> being guys. here, Nate. It's good to be here. Thanks for the invite. <laughs> the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way, as always, to support it is to join the ABA. Not only do you get to support community projects like this podcast, but members get a lot of great benefits, including our magazines, access to the ID Vault, access to birding archives, discounts to partners like OM Systems, that's Olympus Cameras. ABA membership gives you a 10% discount on OM System cameras and lenses. That's a great deal. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week Two, Charmaine Anderson of Ashburb, Ontario, Rich Fisher of Falls of Rough, Kentucky, Randy Gonzalez of Atlanta, Georgia, David Johnston and Colleen McConnell of Huntington, West Virginia, Jill Medley of Bethesda, Ohio, Kelly Rourke of Staunton, Virginia, and Rebecca Taylor of Wilmington, North Carolina. 
all of whom recently joined the American Birding Association and noted this podcast as the reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Executive Director of the ABA and Executive Producer of the podcast is Wayne Klockner, who, like Bruce Springsteen, has dedicated years of study to the nocturnal flight calls of Charadria species. Because the night belongs to plovers. Technical production is by John Lowry, who, like the boss, knows that Acma Forest Greaves can be tough, but just because you're seeing two displaying together, that doesn't mean that they're the same species. That one's a Western, even if it's just dancing with the Clarks. Additional help comes from Maggie Fitzgibbon and Greg Neese, who know that Bruce was never going to catch those precocial baby birds because he knew that grouse and ducks, baby, they were born to run. You can find us online at aba.org, on social media, most everywhere, as American Birding Association on Blue Sky. We are at ABA Birds. Questions, comments, come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Bird Like Tom. See you next week.